0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well being from its ecological impacts and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today I'm joined by Dr. Hannah Bloomfield, who's a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hannah's work focuses on characterizing climate risk in power system planning by working at the interface of energy and climate modeling. Hannah, uh, welcome to Decouple.
1: Thank you for having me, it's great to be here. I
0: I was doing a bit of background research and um, I understand uh, that your work involves sifting through an enormous amount of data uh, more than can fit on the average laptop and, and doing a lot of coding and things like that. Super interested in exploring um, you know the, the the nuts and bolts of your work but before we get into that if you could give us a bit of a, a self-introduction um, tell us about why you why you ended up moving into the field that you did.
1: Yeah thanks hi everyone yeah it's great to be here so I am Hannah yeah I am um... I started getting interested in this kind of energy meteorology field when i was at university so i did a maths and physics degree and a lot of the modules that i did were thinking about fluid dynamics and a lot of the maths about how the atmosphere works Um, and while doing this i also did some modules on kind of low carbon technologies i went to university kind of on the east coast of england where they were building a lot of wind turbines and you know, it, it was really topical um, when I did my degree. And then after that, I had no idea what I wanted to do, really. But I saw some PhDs advertised in this this new field, energy meteorology, um, really new at the time in 2013. Um, and yeah, the rest is history recently for the last eight years been working on the impacts of climate variability and climate change on all kinds of energy systems. Um,
0: so, yeah, I mean, um, off the East Coast, that's into the North Sea. Is the UK one of the countries that's, um, you know, further furthest along on this path of offshore wind?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, we, we have a fantastic resource, which helps a lot. You know, one of the best countries in the world in terms of um, wind speeds. Um, we're just at the end of the kind of jet stream and that North Sea region is fantastically windy. So, We're definitely furthest along, I think, the combination of the UK and Germany. Um, But there's also a really surprising amount of wind energy in China and India. Um, They've built loads, but I guess if you think about it as a fraction of how many people who live there, then Europe's still a little bit ahead.
0: And is the uh, India and China wind fleet mostly onshore then, or...?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's um, a lot more challenging in the regions around the coasts there to build the turbines. So in China, there's just not not really as much sea. Um, And in India, it's you have big monsoon systems and very high offshore winds. So it's a bit more difficult and they've really pushed with the onshore technology first. Yeah.
0: And this is a, a fairly new phenomenon, as you were saying, a new field that you're in, but in terms of the, the UK wind build out, is that, has that been sort of very recent over the last decade or so, or are we stretching back a little further?
1: So I think the very first wind turbines came in the kind of early 80s, but it never really took off. You know, people built a few turbines and thought, oh, actually, you know, we the, the physics works, the turbines spin, um, we can actually harness quite a lot of energy. But it, it was really kind of around, so through, through 2009, 10, when we really started to be seeing the physical impacts of climate change and governments started to think, well, actually, we've, we've really got to do something about coal and gas. We need, to, we need another option. And then we really started to boom in the amount of wind that's getting built. And so um, it's plateaued a little bit over the last couple of years. But the, yeah, we've been building since 2010 pretty rapidly.
0: And these installations are pretty far offshore, aren't they? are they are they things that are kind of visible from the coast or are they kind of way out in the in the ocean?
1: Yeah, most of them you can see from the coast. so okay. um, especially off the east of England coast. If you look out from the beaches, you can see up to a kilometre offshore, these turbines. But there are plans now and a few existing farms, which are quite a long way offshore, which involves some significant infrastructure to get the cabling down to bring the energy back in. Um, some of these cables are incredible. They're these kind of big copper pipes that are all made. Well, copper cable, not pipes. sorry, which is like nearly half a meter thick because of the amount of current and resistance going on in there it's um, yeah it's no it's really incredible Um, it's quite fantastic how far the technology's come
0: and this is all I guess in that quest of chasing after higher capacity factors is that right in terms of siting these things further offshore
1: yeah exactly so the further offshore you can get the kind of smoother the wind field is when you're close to the coast there's a lot of a lot of friction there's a lot of buildings and it makes everything a a bit turbulent a bit kind of bumpy um as you get a bit further offshore you've just got the nice smooth sea and the winds can really just kind of fly through those turbine blades and
0: that's where this this fluid mechanics background is is coming in exactly Um, so you know, it's reading an article um, that you wrote recently for, I think it was the Energy Post EU website. Um, it was titled Climate Change, Wind Droughts and the Implications for Wind Energy. I thought that was really fascinating. Um, I was actually just at um, COP26 in Glasgow. Um, there were days that were windy, but there were certainly days that were, were quite calm. Um, and then on to, on to Berlin, actually, for a few days on, on my way home. Um And yeah, I mean, it was really interesting reading that article because, from what I understand, Europe has been in the midst of an extreme weather event, um, certainly for the last six, seven, eight months. Um, So tell us a little bit about that, um, this this sort of lack of wind that's been experienced, uh, particularly this year.
1: Yeah, it's been a really interesting summer for us in Europe. So over the summer, we've actually experienced some of the lowest winds um, that we've had in the last 60 years um, across Europe. So. It was a really still summer, and as a normal human, it was quite nice actually. You know, we had a lot of very dry days. There wasn't a lot of rain. Um, it was very still, and yeah, it se- it seemed like well, wow, <laughs> quite a nice summer um, for the traditional rainy UK. But um, in terms of wind energy, we were getting significantly low lower than the output that we would normally be expecting to get at that time of year, um, which. It's very interesting because um, with COP26, it's very exciting that you got to go. Um, You know, there's a lot of talk about how we're going to meet our climate targets and how... A lot of what the scientists are interested in is how we can prepare for these kind of events, like what's just happened in the summer. You know, we're going to have highly renewable systems like these kind of things are going to happen. Um, and the question is, how do we how do we plan for that? What are our kind of contingencies? And it was a good test this summer to see that, you know, we still even though it was low wind, we still had energy. The, the lights didn't go off. Um, it was definitely difficult um, for the grid managers to kind of keep everything going. But um you know, we need to know these extreme events do happen in the climate system and we're becoming a lot more susceptible to weather and climate the more wind and solar that we do build.
0: And, you know, I guess there's this paradox of, of you know, trying to address climate change by developing um energy infrastructure that's weather dependent in a world of uh, increasingly ex- extreme weather and I just hadn't thought about a wind drought as an, as an extreme event but you're saying this was the kind of lowest winds that have been experienced in 60 years and there's talk about a phenomenon called global stilling mm-hmm. um, which may have you know implications beyond this year and you think about hurricanes and it's hard to attribute you know some of the exact attributes of that extreme weather event how much is related to climate change how much is natural variability but certainly I think we can say that we're seeing increasing frequency of extreme weather um, and we may see increasing frequency of this particular form of extreme weather such as such as um these these wind droughts so tell us a bit more about this phenomenon of of uh, global stilling
1: yeah so it's, it's very interesting and it's so true what you say like through building renewable generation we're inventing these whole new types of extreme events which to a, to a traditional meteorologist it just not being very windy it's quite boring you know it's not like right. a hurricane or um a lightning storm or something but yeah, no, global stilling um, has the potential to be a challenge. Um, so the, the kind of premise behind it is that we're, global warming is happening. Um, and we know that because of, um, you know, the, the setup of the earth and everything, that the, the, the poles are actually warming quite a bit quicker um, than, the, than the mid-latitudes. You know, the ice caps are melting, and that's where we're seeing the, the largest impacts. But um, generally, we have quite a big gradient in temperature, um, so it's really hot at the equator and the Arctic is very cold and the Antarctic. Um, and that is what generates our jet streams. And this is kind of the phenomena which leads us to have these kind of winds that, that go through the globe, this temperature difference. And so if you, if you mess with that temperature gradient, you know, as we, as we melt all the glaciers, we warm up um, the Arctic, we, we, we start to mess around with the jet stream behaviour. Um, and if you look in lots of climate model sim- simulations, um, quite a lot of them suggest that we the jet could slow down, um, its location could shift around a bit under climate change, and this kind of slowing down process is what people call the global stilling. Um, but modelling this is it's really difficult, and it's a really open question in me- in climate science and meteorology at the moment. So wind speeds are really difficult to predict. We have the climate models have a really good handle on the temperature response. Like if if you read these reports, these phrases like incredibly likely and really certain, whereas when you start to talk about things like wind speeds and precipitation um, starts to get a bit more like "Mm, probably, you know, it gets a bit more difficult because the models all kind of show or can show contrasting responses. And they're all equally likely, um, it's just about which kind of path of the butterfly um, we, we decide to go off on. So it's a fun area to work in because we don't exactly know what's going to happen. But it does make it a challenge for these wind farm developers um, who, who need to decide where they're going to commit to the turbines.
0: Right. I mean, I, I've, I've been aware of, as a, as a Canadian, not even living in the north of Canada, but experiencing some uh, unusual northern weather in the south part of Canada because of polar vortices and, and mm-hmm. that kind of that I think that has more to do with sort of high and low pressure zones and where yeah. cold air can escape from the Arctic is that at all related to this phenomena related to wind or is that a that sort of a whole different
1: part of the climate system so everything connects in the climate system so it's related so these kind of polar vortices they travel like they, they ride along the jet stream basically and they will kind of dive down and plummet into Canada or push forward depending on what the jet's doing. So yeah, when you experience these extreme weather, it's all, everything is connected. You know, they're all kind of big big anomalies on there but yeah it's been a particularly big year for Canada for weather this year so
0: yeah yeah our west coast has been hammered and I think that's a a big thing that people don't understand because you know we talk about you know we're going to see you know two degrees three degrees uh, increase in global average temperature by 2100 but you know that's different over the ocean it's certainly different in western Canada where we're seeing sort of double or triple that Mm. it's different in Siberia where you know It's looking like it's jumping kind of 10 degrees. So um, I think that that draws attention to it. So just so I've got it clear, because you mentioned Jetstream frequently, and it's something that's certainly like in the popular parlance, like I've heard of it before um but i just want to make sure that i kind of really understand the phenomena you're saying that it's generated basically by the difference in temperatures between the the poles of the earth and and the equator yeah and that temperature differential and that's what's responsible for things like the trades winds that were in terms so responsible for you know patterns of colonization like i'm just uh, i love looking at things you know beyond just uh well looking at how sort of you know weather meteorology earth systems have even shaped um you know human human migrations and flows and things like that so I'm, I'm getting kind of nerdy here but just do I have in broad strokes the the jet stream kind of understood there or
1: yeah no absolutely that the easiest way to think about it is like um the atmosphere kind of works in these convective cells so it's hot in the equator so you know the heat rises same as it does in your house if you put the heating on downstairs um, and then it kind of it hits a kind of lid the atmosphere has various levels where it just locks stuff in hits the lid and expands outwards um, so it hits the lid starts traveling north but we have this force called the coriolis force um, so that's to do with just the way the earth is spinning means that um, winds are diverted and as these winds travel north, because of that force, they bend. And in the northern hemisphere, they travel eastwards, same in the southern. And that generates these jets. Um, but, you know, the, and then the jet streams just start flowing round. We have the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere jet. Um, and then, you know, heat rises. And then as it cools down, it'll fall. Um, so it's these, th- this, these large scale kind of cells are set up and that returning flow bends the other way. And that is the trade winds you're talking about, you know, like equatorial gotcha. kind of flowing winds. So, um, yeah, it's kind of like a giant cup of tea, really. Um, the atmosphere is all just kind of flowing around in these convective cells and the weather systems kind of operate on top of that to give us what we see every day.
0: I, lo- I love the, the UK references to the cup of tea and also that, you know, what what makes the UK great for this form of energy is that you guys just have terrible weather all the time. <laughs> Um, it has got to so, be some
1: perks, haven't there, to living
0: here. I'm, I'm sorry to you know, keep <laughs> rubbing it in. Um, so one, one of the things that I thought was really interesting from the article was that you were mentioning that this drop in wind speed this year um, has particular um, significance for, say, the, out, the, the power output of a, of a wind turbine because that power output is related to the cube of the wind speed. Can you just explain that to our listeners? Like just how impactful a drop in X percentage of wind is on actual power output?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the way wind turbines um, generate energy is, is quite clever, really. So if you've got very light wind speeds um, up to about three meters per second, which won't mean much to you, but kind of like a nice light breeze that you might feel outside, that's not enough to get the blades spinning. Um, so, you know, then nothing will happen. You're not getting any energy. There's then a kind of threshold where it kind of ramps up, like almost exponentially. So the more energy you're putting, the more wind you're putting in, you're getting loads more out for just a little change in wind speed. So that's between about three and ten meters per second, um, which it would start to feel pretty windy at ten meters per second. Your hair's blowing all over the place. You know, you'd, uh, at the surface, you'd be, you, you wouldn't be holding onto your umbrella very well. Um, and then they have just a flat region um, where. Above this threshold, the wind turbines are absolutely happy and they can just generate a lot of energy. Um, the wind turbines are about 100 metres up in the air, so it's pretty windy up there. Um, and then they're, they're getting optimal conditions, really good energy generation. It, if it then gets too windy um like if a big storm comes through a big podivore of see they they could get damaged um there's lots of gearing inside them and gusts from the strong winds can damage them um so then they just turn off um they're kind of they do, for safety reasons when you get over 25 meters per second like during a big storm they'll just turn off so
0: and that means they just turn the angle of their blades kind of like a like a sailing boat to, to so the blades aren't turned anymore by the wind or
1: yeah, so they can do. They can do that. They can turn out of the prevailing wind conditions. Like very clever. They just kind of spin around. Um, or they can full scale shut down. So if it's very gusty and the winds are kind of spinning around all over the place, they will just hard turn off. Um, just to because it's very expensive to do the maintenance, um, and if something does go wrong, they'll be out of action for a long time. Um, but the yeah exactly, but in a lot of conditions you know you would you would yeah you would just rotate your blades just to be like oh uh, there's a bit bit too much wind there you know and you'll just spin it off a bit but yeah, but in this ramping region they call it where you're rapidly increasing the amount of wind generation you get, a small drop in wind speed can lead to quite a large change in the power output um so if it's getting you know if it's quite gusty or if it's getting windy and then it's dropping off that can really matter. Um, but it's most noticeable in over these kind of long timescales. So when we're talking about like this wind drought over summer, if you average over long periods with generally quite low wind speeds all summer, that means it had a, it had a big impact on our power output because we were very rarely getting up to these optimal conditions in Europe where the wind turbines were meant to be. You know, they're happy when it's really windy.
0: So what what sort of decrease in wind production did did we see? I think seemed like the uk was hit particularly hard scotland i think was down 30 percent in terms of its was that its wind production or that was wind speeds or i'm just trying to get a sense if you can give us some real world data like the wind dropped from being 30 meters per second to 20 and that that impact was x on on the um output of these wind turbines maybe without getting too granular but i just want to try and understand that in a in a more definite sense
1: yeah so i i think so a, a key point is generally we have our highest wind speeds in winter. It's windier then. We have a kind of seasonal cycle where generally it's a bit lower in summer. Um. So we were never expecting like full whack loads of wind generation. But the, the wind speeds, I think it was about 30% less power we got um, from the wind turbines. And I'm not sure what that equated to in terms of wind speed, but 30% less power at a time where... Um, it got very complicated as well because um, gas prices were very high for us at that time. So it, it would have been very handy if we'd have had a windy summer. Um, not, not so nice for the public, but nice in terms of, um, you know, have, having a resource um, to, to create the power. So, um, yeah, it's, for, for summer, it was about 30% less than we normally get in a summer that we were getting.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems to introduce a, a whole other... I mean, it sounds like very exciting work because um, what you study and those predictions that you make are very impactful, particularly in terms of planning these projects, as you mentioned. Um, in, in terms of the economics of that, you know, this wind drought, do you know anything about how that's affected, you know, wind companies or, or how that's affecting the appetite for uh, building more projects? I think in the article, you said that European wind speeds may reduce by 10% as a result of, of climate change. Is that that 10% reduction would it look like a wind drought every year or just more frequently or average wind speeds would be down what's what's your sense of that and what's the impact on the economics and the viability of of wind as a as a uh, climate change fighting technology
1: yes really good question and it's one that um it's quite hard to convey just with a with a number like that when we say like oh wind speeds might get 10% less so there are quite a lot of factors um the, wind, the UK is a very windy region to start with, so we can actually take a 10% drop and it's still a very good region to build your wind turbines. Um, in terms of these extreme events, so a, a wind turbine company who are thinking to invest in a location for a turbine, they do their homework so they would be aware of the possibility of this kind of event happening Um, they have access to very long meteorological data sets where they can kind of do these hypothetical studies to think like well i've got like 60 years of data if i were to have had a wind farm here in all of those years what would have happened and from that they can build this economic model so um we hit the bogey year this year you know we hit the one where you really didn't want to have so if you were if you built a wind turbine last year and this is your first year of runtime, it's unfortunate it will be harder for you to repay your loans because it, you just haven't generated as much income
0: it's like getting into the stock market in 1928 or something
1: exactly like that yeah it's just like you picked a bad time but it but you know, if you've looked at lots of years of data that generally, actually, you have a lot of good years as well. So these these things are costed on a very long time scale, especially in these mid-latitude regions. So I think it would be very similar off both coasts of um, the US because you, you potentially have good wind resource there. But it's very variable um, in terms of what you get. So if you were to invest offshore, it would be a long term Uh, modeling study that would need to be done to know which places were good. Because I know there are some studies like that that have been done in Maryland, in the US, which which showed that, oh, actually, you could have some quite bad years but they're really offset by the good ones. So, right, with um, so
0: a bit of a potential for feast and famine. Now, that's based on the historical record, and you were saying there's a lot of uncertainty going forward. Yeah, um, it's an exciting field. You said because there is that uncertainty, but how are you know how do you foresee that, and how do you think companies are, are looking at that? You said they're they're really consulting with folks like you a lot because <laughs> this is really relevant for their economic case. But yeah, yeah. going forward, I mean, you know, we're. Again, I think there's so much complacency about climate change because it's like, well, it's only been a degree and things haven't been that bad yet. But the impacts, I don't know whether exponential is the right function to apply to to mm-hmm. the impacts, but things get a lot more hairy and screwy as as we keep, you know, rapidly moving up degree by degree. So what what do you think the, the kind of best case and worst case impacts are on, on wind output?
1: Yeah, you're definitely right that these extreme events, you know, they're coming quicker and people are becoming a lot more aware. For wind energy... Um, The key thing we say to people, like we look in these models, the models are kind of uncertain. But one thing that we do know is that this variability year to year that we're seeing at the moment it's much larger than the climate change signal, and um, particularly over Europe. So year to year, we have some years which are just generally not that good for wind. Um, it relates to the large-scale weather. And, you know, the jet stream was just kind of in the wrong place. Again, it all comes back to these kind of large-scale things, which means we don't get as many storms, so we don't get as much wind. Um, so some years it's good, some years it's bad. The climate change signal is small compared to that. So... It's important because it's still a factor. You've got all these kind of different components when you're thinking about where to build. But um, at the moment, for wind, the big deal is this variability. For other variables, like, you know, if you're thinking about temperatures, if you think about heat waves, um, you know, it's a bit of a different story because we've got so much more confidence in our climate change projections. And it's a field that doesn't vary as much year to year so you really care about those uh, every year's events and you know it's it's kind of yeah it's a bit of a different story for wind because it is quite a difficult model field
0: Right, but that that um, what what you said in the article about a potential for a ten percent decrease in wind speeds, if, mm-hmm. if power output is the cube or related in in, a, in that kind of mathematical function, that would presumably be quite worrisome. And and you're saying that would be certain years you'd have great output, but certain years you could be really hit hard. So you'd have an increasing frequency of these like long seasons of wind droughts, or just a kind of average decrease, um, or is that too? too granular too hard to say
1: it's quite hard to say because in a lot of places in say the north sea a lot of the time the average wind speeds sit in this flat bit of just really good generation so you you, if you're in the sweet spot and you reduce by 10 percent, you could still be in the sweet spot um so you know it's in some locations it won't be a problem at all if if you're on that cusp there from where it starts to drop down rapidly then it will matter um but the key thing is the winds are so variable, like minutes, hours, days, on all these timescales, that they fluctuate a lot. And it's not like they sit stationary at your wind turbine. And um, if you were to look at the output from one of these farms, uh, quite a lot of the time it's all over the place. You know, sometimes it's good until you hit the sweet spot. Um, it, it can be really quite erratic. So... um. It's quite a complicated problem and it's something that a lot of climate scientists are now investing quite a lot of energy in, trying to um, work out what we can say to industry and how we can advise best the kind of questions you're asking.
0: Right, right. No, it's, it's interesting. I, you know, I've, I've been paying a lot of attention to energy systems and different forms of, of renewable energy. And, and thinking about hydro, um, you know, mm-hmm. it's a very dry year, I understand, up in, in Norway. So their their hydro input was down a little bit. And I think yeah. that impacted the overall European energy market and probably compounded some of the issues with natural gas. In California this year, um, there were big droughts. And so their hydro output was was way down. They were importing a lot of electricity. Most of it fossil from from their neighbors. Um. But yeah, it's it's interesting. I hadn't I thought about wind as, it, as you're, you're saying. You know, if you look at a production graph, kind of day to day or within a week, it's. I mean, it looks. I'm, I'm a medical doctor, so it looks like a patient whose heart <laughs> is not not beating <laughs> very yeah. well. Um, but that that sort of inter um, interseasonal doesn't even capture it. I guess it's kind of interannual um, variability that you see with hydro when there's droughts applies. You know, so this this idea of wind drought, I think, is um, very much plays off of what we understand about hydroelectricity already you mentioned that um you know gas has absolutely gone through the roof um it's a challenge i think for for grid managers to figure out how to how to keep a grid going um that's the one thing about the grid is you need this sort of perfect matching of of supply and demand um and the backup you know in much of europe while i was in germany for instance um coal was actually the number one source of generation on the grid despite something like 500 billion spent on on wind and solar assets they just were not performing it was cloudy and I had my electricity map uh app going on my phone when I flicked on the light switch and it was it was a bit depressing um what are I mean what are people talking about in, in your circles in terms of how to how to deal with this not just kind of moment-to-moment intermittency but inter-seasonal inter-annual intermittency in a way that's not gonna be harmful for climate efforts
1: yeah it's quite exciting really because it is really good that we're transitioning to these renewable um, energies. And I think we finally got enough that we're seeing these challenges. And this is good. Um, it's good that we're moving away from the coal. You know, the coal coal is the most polluting problem and we're really struggling with that. But I think a lot of things that people are looking about from our side are things like energy storage. Um, like we're talking about these really windy, really wet periods. You know, you can store the energy, whether that be for a week when you need it or maybe intraseasonly um it's it's really exciting the technology is kind of there um we just need to start to run with it and work out um scientifically what kind of time scales are most useful to deploy it on i think the other interesting aspects are on kind of the demand side um so thinking about human behavior and can we make homes smarter can we can we move the energy usage around so that we can start using it at a maybe at times when we do have the resource available um so solar is the classic example right we've got it during the day we don't have it at night if you don't have any storage so can we get people charging electric cars during the day can we get industry running predominantly during the day you know there's a there's um making all these grids a lot smarter i think is another thing we can do to start to help um these renewables
0: yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've commented on this before that it starts to feel a bit like a, a Rube Goldberg machine when there's there's so many variables to keeping this yeah. kind of life support system of society going. We've been having some interesting discussions recently with um, experts um, who either are from or study sub-Saharan Africa and, you know, they're in a very different spot in terms of their industrialization process and how they think about energy but so much of it is you know not just access but reliability um in terms of the the grid crashing and and, and that sort of thing and the, imp- the very real impacts that have both on um you know human lives and economics um you know one can think about you know a heat wave where there's not insufficient energy to to run air conditioners and keep elderly or other vulnerable people alive because of the heat wave like reliable energy becomes a real um focus for adaptation and that that kind of leads to this paradox of well in africa at this moment to have reliable energy that probably means developing a bunch of fossil fuels um, in order to be resilient and adapt to climate change and it's interesting in the industrialized world, there's sort of a, a, a different paradigm. Um, do you have any opinions? Because some some people say, well, you know, nuclear energy offers the, the sort of climate benefits of, of no emissions, but also is not dependent on weather. And as we head into a more extreme uh future in terms of weather predictability and 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 um you know wind droughts and things like that is that something that that crosses your radar or your group's radar or are you guys very much focused on on the impacts on renewable energy because of the kind
1: of work that you do Yeah I don't actually work that much with nuclear like I I don't have many opinions on it to be honest one thing that we do look at is um for nuclear reactors actually Particularly in the summer, they have quite large cooling water requirements, Um, and you you know, as uh, with climate change, um, in the summer potentially the nuclear reactors are going to struggle to be able to have that cold river water um, to to efficiently cool the plants. So, um, from the from the climate aspect, they're not without their problems. Um, But personally, I do see them as a you know a cleaner, um, more helpful situation that can be used to try and you know just stop us using coal i think um from my point of view that's the big thing that we need to be just doing transitioning away from these traditional oil gas coal fossil fuels and if nuclear is a a, a stop gap to do that as long as we understand the issues and that maybe it's not a permanent solution i think potentially that could be useful
0: and in terms of um, the, the cooling water, that you said that's more of an issue with nuclear plants on rivers, obviously, mm. because that's that's going to be determined again by climate and precipitation yeah. and, and whatnot. Is that an issue? I know I've heard in France they've had to shut down several nuclear reactors in the summer as a result of that. Um, is that an, is, are the UK's plants mostly coastal or are there any that are like on the Thames or something? I'm trying to think.
1: I think they are all coastal. Um, but we have a lot of coast, you know. Um they're quite good locations. Yeah, no, I think ours are all coastal, so it's less of a problem. Um I know there are a lot of studies thinking about what it actually does to the coastal flows because you're chucking a lot of hot water out there um but yeah no less of a problem if you're not in the rivers i guess you could also argue that in the uk we're not experiencing the heat wave temperatures in the same way that you're getting in central europe as well so definitely a bigger problem for countries like france that are so dependent on it
0: so what what do you where do you see your work going in the next you know five or ten years um is this this is a field that you've kind of settled into and are, are are sort of settling settling into a long career in or it sounds like an exciting field like there's a there's a lot going on you said like there's a lot of uncertainty so just yeah maybe in closing tell me a little bit more about what you're what you're thinking the next five ten years looks like professionally for you and also I guess you know for the field
1: yeah so I think um, as a field what I think we need to do is and um, what a lot of my Current goals are worked around is how we can connect these sectors together. So climate scientists can do some amazing things with interpreting these models. Um, And there's a lot of really specialist knowledge on the energy side. But the fields are still, they're kind of still separate fields. They're not so good at talking, even though there are people like myself and many other groups who are now Um, trademark energy meteorologists um, we could all make more progress and exploit the skills better if we work together so um, there's quite a few groups um, kind of conference groups now talking about this and trying to work together but um, so kind of as a community I think that's what's needed personally I um, would like to move to work on more kind of developing nations. So I've been doing some work on Mexico, on Africa um, and on India. I kind of think, to be honest, there's a lot of fantastic science for Europe and America. The governments just need to read it, listen and get on with it. You know, we we can solve, we can tell you what to do um, as a scientific community. What I think is interesting is exactly what you're saying. These nations that don't have the well-developed energy systems and... We could, we could help with this from the science perspective, we could help telling you where are the best locations to invest, thinking about the climate change impacts before anything's on the ground in terms of renewables and really planning cost-effective systems, especially if you don't have a lot of money to spend, you need to make sure the stuff that's going down is really in the best place it could possibly be. So um, for me personally, that's where I'd like to work now, more with um, the countries that need it a bit more.
0: No, it's it's interesting. I'm a big fan of uh, one of your country people, uh, James Lovelock, and he's constantly. Um, railing against uh, the fact that we've become so siloed in our disciplines Yes. Yeah. I mean maybe it's easy for him to say because he's probably still has an IQ of you know 150 at the age of 101 but um, you know it is it is really interesting from sort of from my perspective as an outsider I'm a medical doctor who's taken a big interest in climate and energy and interviewing so many different people from different fields it's it is fascinating um, and it's great to see people that are starting to bridge you know different disciplines and, and bring that understanding because um, you know there's there's a lot of uh, very well-educated climate scientists who don't necessarily delve into the energy side and, and understand some of the, the limitations and implications um, for climate and energy. Um, James Hansen is a notable exception um, and we'll be, uh, we'll be releasing your episode shortly after, uh, after James Hansen's uh, drops next week. But
1: awesome.
0: um, it's, uh, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for coming on and, and I hope to touch base sometime in the future, Hannah.
1: Hey, you're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.